Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Hi, Stephen Price here. Just a warning, this podcast contains violence and quite a bit of bad language, so take care of yourself while you're listening. Would you ever confess to something you didn't do? I bet you think you wouldn't. People tend to reason, I would never falsely confess. You'd have to torture me. That's Richard Leo, a professor of law and social psychology at the University of San Francisco. He thinks you're wrong. And so people say, I would never do that without realizing what it's like to be uh, in an interrogation and without knowing that police are trained to use very manipulative, sometimes coercive or deceptive in some countries' techniques. What if he's right? What if the story we tell ourselves about confessions, that they must be true, isn't very accurate? Can we work out which confessions are likely to be false? More to the point, can judges and juries? And what does all this tell us about Mr. Big Stings? I'm Stephen Price, and this is Mr. Little Meets Mr. Big, a podcast about where the police can use a story to find out the truth about a murder. We've seen how the Mr. Big Sting played out and led to a murder confession by David Little. In this episode, I'll be asking what science tells us about when we can trust confessions. These things make confessions look rational, coherent, plausible, and as you said, detailed. The intuitive response to the fact of a confession to crime is inevitably, it must be wrong. Well, what is this, honour among thieves? Imagine you're a university student and you've volunteered to be part of an experiment. You're partnered up with someone and you're told to solve various puzzles together. After that, you have to solve some puzzles by yourself. While you're working on your puzzle by yourself, you notice something odd about your partner. She's very upset and seems to be struggling to do her puzzle. Still, you don't help her out because that's against the rules. Afterwards, the experimenter calls you into a room. He looks worried. He tells you you got the same wrong answer as your partner on the key problem. He accuses you of sharing answers. He says he's contacted the professor in charge of the experiment, who's annoyed and upset. But the experimenter says, you probably didn't know what a big deal this was. Then he offers you a deal. Sign a statement admitting to sharing answers. And, he says, things could probably be settled quickly. You'd just have to come back and repeat the experiment. But if you don't sign... He doesn't know what the professor will do. He might be treated as cheating. He could be in big trouble. What would you do? You're pretty sure you wouldn't sign that statement, aren't you? You're pretty sure most people wouldn't. But how sure are you about that? As you've probably guessed, this experiment isn't really about whether you and your partner can solve the puzzles. You didn't really get the same wrong answer. In fact, your partner was part of the experiment. You're the subject. 
The experiment is designed to see whether people can be tricked into confessing to something they didn't do. And it turns out, they can. Nearly half the students in this experiment actually fess up, even though they didn't cheat. I think it's hard to be certain you or I wouldn't be one of those who'd sign the confession. OK, you might think, that's all very well. The stakes aren't all that high. But would people confess to crimes they didn't commit? Well, we know the answer to that. The answer is yes. We know that for sure. One way we know that is because new DNA testing technology has let us revisit old cases. You've probably read about it lots of times. A DNA test shows that the accused person was actually not guilty. Their conviction is overturned and they're let out of prison. What you probably didn't know is that in lots of those cases, the accused person had confessed. When we look at people whose convictions are overturned because of new DNA evidence, more than one in four had confessed to the crime, sometimes in colourful detail and with tears in their eyes. But the DNA shows that those confessions must have been false. Remember Professor Richard Leo from the beginning of this episode? He's one of the world's leading experts in the science of confessions. He points out that DNA cases aren't representative of all crimes, so it's hard to say how often accused people falsely confess. We just don't know. And, you know, we could say, well, surely it's rare, surely it's the exception. That seems reasonable, that's the conventional wisdom. Surely it's far more common to get true and reliable confessions. Okay, that seems reasonable too, but we don't know. It could be 1%, it could be 10%, it might be 1% in most cases, but 10% in homicides. New Zealand research suggests about 60% of people being interrogated make a confession or admission. That doesn't tell us how many of those are false, but it gives us an idea of how important interrogations are. This matters because about four out of five accused people plead guilty, many of them after interrogation. We may not know exactly how often people falsely confess, but we do have a pretty good idea of why it happens and who it happens to. By disposition, what we see is people who are juveniles, people who are young, you know, for reasons having to do with their immaturity, their brain development, their impulsiveness, uh, people who have intellectual disabilities, in the, uh, but people with low-functioning IQs, um, people with mental illness, and people who we would call them people-pleasers or doormats or eggshell defendants in the United States, just by nature of their personality, they're so agreeable and compliant that they are more vulnerable, as you say, by disposition to making or agreeing to a false confession. In other words, the sorts of people who are overrepresented in New Zealand's prison population. Why do they confess? To answer that question, I want to show you one of the most successful confession-generating strategies ever invented, short of torture. The people who dreamed it up boast that it gets people to confess 80% of the time. It's widely used by police in the United States. It's called the Reed Technique. But it's really a collection of techniques. The psychological tricks kick in after the police have investigated the basic facts of the crime and brought in a suspect for an interview. The first step is to figure out whether the guy you suspect is lying. Most suspects are guys. Maybe you caught him in a lie or an inconsistency. Maybe the evidence against him is overwhelming. But if not, you can use Reed's lie detection method. Here's how that works. You ask some innocuous questions to get a fix on his usual body language. You know, like, how old are you? Where do you live? 
Then you fire off some hardball questions designed to make him anxious. You might say, we're analysing evidence from the crime scene. Is there any reason that your DNA might turn up there? The point is to watch him closely for giveaway shifts in body language that reveal he's lying. Did he rub his eye? Did he look down? Those are clues that he's not telling the truth. If you now think he's lying, the next steps are all about getting him to confess. You accuse him, point blank. You stand over him. You do all the talking. You pull out a fat file of what looks like evidence against him. You cut off any denials. You tell him, there's absolutely no doubt you did this. Now let's move forward and see what we can do about it. You ask him a have you stopped beating your wife question. Like, have you done this many times before? Or was this the first time? The idea here is to maximise the strength of the evidence. So you're also maximising the stress of denying it. Then you make out that what he did wasn't so bad. Maybe you'll suggest it was an accident. Or you'll give him a justification that makes it easier for him to confess. Here's a script from one of the read manuals that you might say to someone accused of rape. Joe, no woman should be on the street alone at night looking as sexy as she did. Even here today, she's got on a low-cut dress that makes visible damn near all of her breasts. That's wrong. It's too much temptation for any normal man. If she hadn't gone around dressed like that, you wouldn't be in this room now. This is called minimisation. It makes people think that what they did wasn't so bad. Maybe they'll be treated leniently if they confess. When the suspect does confess, you praise his honesty and push for more details to shore up the case. Here's Richard Leo describing that second step of the read technique. And then in interrogation, essentially they confront a suspect, accuse the suspect, tell them they did it, tell them there's all this evidence, don't accept their denials, don't let them object. That's kind of one aspect, breaking the person down and, and trying to make them feel caught and trapped and hopeless. The jig is up, we've got the evidence, no one's going to believe your denials, nothing you say or do can change the outcome. And then the other is incentivizing them through what the read people call themes or inducements, appeals to self-interest, sometimes through scenarios about why it's in their best interest to stop denying and start admitting. You might have noticed that an awful lot turns on that first step, the one that involves watching the suspect's body language to get a feel for whether they're lying. That's often how you decide whether to move to the heavy-hitting psychological techniques to extract a confession. You decide they're guilty and then start treating them as guilty in the hopes they'll admit it. But what if they're innocent? Might the Reed technique sometimes cause them to confess anyway? Reed's president, Joseph Buckley, was asked that question. He said, no, because we don't interrogate innocent people. He means they only move to the hard-hitting step two if they're sure that the person's guilty. So they only interrogate guilty people, and often the only way they know they're guilty by their assessment of body language. Let's think about that. Can we really tell whether someone's lying from their body language? Professor Leo says no. There's no unique physiological reaction associated with lying. He says the idea that we get anxious when we lie and start sending body language signals about it that can be read by trained interrogators is bogus. The scientific research is very clear that many of the signals that the read people and other interrogation trainers say are indicative of lying 
gaze aversion, picking lint off your jacket, nervously running your hands through your hair, there's a whole set of them, uh, are not diagnostic, according to the literature, of deception. Not diagnostic. That means those behaviours haven't been proved to show that someone's lying. In fact, in one experiment, police did worse than students, even though they were more confident in their ability to tell that someone was lying. They train police to be human lie detectors, and that doesn't align with the science until we find unique physiological reactions that only occur when somebody lies. We can't train police to be human lie detectors at high levels of accuracy. There's one obvious problem about using these supposed signs of anxiety as a police lie detection tool. I talked about it with Professor Leo. That there are a lot of other explanations for why people may be manifesting those behaviours. Like they're in a police station in an interrogation room with some people (laughs) accusing them of a crime. There's another problem too. Letting interrogators follow their instincts about whether someone is lying opens up the door to all their prejudices about the sort of people who lie and commit crimes. And research shows the US police tend to skip the body language analysis anyway and move straight into pressing for a confession every time they've got a suspect. Now, Reed's president, Joseph Buckley, says police overzealousness like this isn't Reed's fault. Reed's manual says not to do this. Still, it's surely worrying if police in the real world jump straight into the hard-hitting interviewing strategy that assumes people are guilty, even if the manual says not to do that. Mr Buckley also says trained police questioning suspects might be better at ferreting out lies than people in lab experiments. And he says Reed teaches interrogators to be extra careful when dealing with people who are very young or who they can tell have mental or psychological problems. And Reed tells them not to use threats of harm or outright promises of leniency. But Mr Buckley doesn't see any problem with things like spoon-feeding people moral justifications in the hope they'll confess. He doesn't see it as an implicit suggestion that lenient treatment will follow. I'm no expert, but when somebody seems to be excusing your behaviour, can they really say they're not suggesting that it wasn't so bad and isn't likely to be harshly punished? Or that when they're standing over you, browbeating you and insisting you've done it, they're not being coercive? Still, these are confessions. Can't we believe them? Maybe. But remember the experiment with the students and the puzzles? Downplaying the wrongness of the offence and suggesting it can be dealt with leniently causes a surprising number of people to confess to something they didn't do. And that's a big part of the read technique. Once you've decided to go full-on read, you're using psychological tools that have been proven to lead to false confessions. That's why there's lots of academic criticism about the read technique. So perhaps it's not surprising that a New Zealand police review of investigative interviewing around the world found the read technique was generally regarded as manipulative and oppressive. That review suggested the New Zealand police use a British interviewing technique with the acronym PEACE. The P stands for preparation and also planning. The E is for engage and explain. And A-C-E is account, closure and evaluate. So, PEACE. The read technique was never New Zealand police policy. But the police review found that New Zealand police often assumed suspects were guilty and were more concerned with getting a confession than finding out the truth. Some of them were accusatory and judgmental. It also found, by the way, most police just weren't very good at interviewing. They didn't plan very well. Their questions were confusing or unhelpful. They wanted the interview over and done with. And they weren't very good at asking probing questions, drawing out detail or asking follow-up questions. 
So in 2007, the New Zealand police formally adopted the UK's peace technique. The aim now, they say, is to establish the truth, not just to get a confession. But here's the thing. If you think back to the Mr Big interview with David Little, there's something really striking about it. Doesn't it look a lot more like the Reed method than the peace method? Let's look again at Scott's interview with David Little in 2014 that we heard in the last episode. Right up front, as we're going to see later, police notes show that they assume David Little is guilty. They call him the offender. Scott shows David his copy of David's police file. He's got all the evidence against David. He minimises Brett's murder. It's nothing to him. Like, I don't give a fuck if you've knocked over this boy. or I don't fucking care less. My loyalty's not to him. It's to you, OK? In fact, the confession will be rewarded. It will prove David is truthful. Besides, it's a criminal organisation after all. Crime's what they do. It's hard to minimise a murder more than that. Then Scott accuses David of killing Brett. He says his crooked cop Lee reckons David did it. And he believes him. You know, having worked with Lee, I know he's fucking good at his job. I have no reason to doubt anything that he tells me. He doesn't take no for an answer. David Little denies it twice, but Scott keeps pressing him. So you could see Mr Big as an attempt to bypass the rules on police interrogation, including the right to silence in a lawyer, and to use a method that New Zealand Police's own review described as manipulative and oppressive. In the Mr. Big, there is elements of that. It does mimic, to some degree, the Reed techniques. Richard Leo isn't the only expert who thinks so. Well, yeah, that final exchange with Mr. Big would appear to be eerily similar to a guilt-presumptive custodial interrogation. In other words, the Reed technique. The second voice you heard just then is psychology professor Timothy Moore from York University in Canada. Professor Moore has studied Mr Big's things and teaches his students about them. What do your students think? <laughs> oh, the students are appalled. I mean, I was appalled. I, mean, I still am. He says Mr Big's things are psychologically manipulative. He ticks off the psychological tools they use, starting with the rewards offered. I mean, the gang members flash large rolls of cash, they eat out a lot at upscale restaurants, they drive BMWs, they go to a lot of strip clubs. We respond to rewards, and these are very enticing ones. But he says it's not just about the money, it's the way they manipulate friendship. The degree of intrusiveness is hard to overstate. It not only increases the target's social circle, if he used to have low self-esteem, it's now it's vastly improved. They tell him how much they like him, and it makes him like them back. So now he's got a, a pretty sort of socially intimate connection with new friends. I mean, it's pretty psychologically fulfilling. It's, an, it's, it's, it's a profound betrayal and disruption of human decency to treat somebody like that. Absolutely. On the other hand, it has led to the solving of very serious crimes that would not have been solved otherwise. Correct. Richard Leo says there are problems with ordinary police interrogations, but Mr Big Ones are worse because they create a much more powerful story in the target's head. It's like the difference between a movie, because that's what Mr. Big really is. It's a Hollywood production. And an interrogation is just a scene. 
In terms of likelihood of producing false confessions, then how does how does the fact that it's a movie rather than a scene affect that? Well, my hypothesis would be that it would be it should be for multiple reasons far easier to get false confessions through Mr. Big scenarios because they're more extensive, they're more deceptive, and they're equally, if not more, coercive. Interestingly, Timothy Moore also compares Mr. Big to a movie. That doesn't make it any less controlling, just because he's unaware of the cinema verite that he's in the middle of. In fact, you could argue it's even more controlling because he's unaware of it. There's something I need to tell you about these professors. Both of them were lined up to give evidence for the defence in David Little's trial. Now, that doesn't mean they're biased. Experts are used because they have special knowledge that jurors usually don't have, and they can help the jury understand what other evidence means. Their job is to be objective, not to go to bat for one side. Still, the lawyers on both sides choose particular experts because they're likely to help their case. So let's ask these two to respond to some of the main arguments the prosecution is making about Mr Big Stings. For one thing, the prosecution says David Little isn't coerced into doing anything. The gang tells him, repeatedly, that he can leave any time he likes. Isn't his confession, in a real sense, voluntary? Professor Moore says you can't call it voluntary if someone's pulling your strings like that. Professor Leo agrees. He was sucked in. And the deal was too good. I mean, at some, some point, everybody's got a price, even if they can walk away. But he says there's something else, too. Can we really talk about voluntariness here? There's something inherently vexing about the concept of voluntariness. If you push too deep, it doesn't make sense anymore. Am I voluntarily driving to Wakefield if I think I'm driving to Motueka but miss the turn? Am I voluntarily letting the police into my house if I don't know I can refuse? Am I voluntarily giving my money to the fraudster? So you might be right. In, in, in a philosophical sense, he was free to go. Every, he was free to make every choice that he made, but he felt compelled nonetheless by the pressure and inducements that to him were irresistible. But weren't those inducements inducements to be honest? Isn't it the genius of the Mr Big Sting that it's designed to give the target a chance to be truthful about what happened? But that's only partial because he's being offered, the, the message is being reinforced repeatedly, we know what the truth is, right? They're trying to direct him to confess to their version of the truth, which is very much like a police interrogation. Professor Moore makes a different point. Uh, well... What is this, honour among thieves? This is a criminal organisation. It robs and tricks people. It's what it does. It doesn't follow the rules. Dishonesty is its stock and trade. Can it really expect honesty of its members? I think it's a stretch to apply those terms to the courtroom where truth has a different significance and a different meaning. Should you be held to the truth you tell when your boss asks you whether you like her new idea? To what you say when the school bully has you on the ground? On the other hand, David Little wasn't bullied. You might remember that Mr Big's things in Canada often include threats of violence. So the target believes that if Mr Big doesn't think he's telling the truth, he'll get beaten up, or worse. But that doesn't happen in New Zealand. So we have a what I like to call a kind of gentler Mr. Big Sting in New Zealand. <laughs> a small Mr. Big. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, a medium, medium, Mr. Medium size. But you still have these inducements. Oh, yes. Where... The friendship, the job, the money, the cars, the trips. 
Richard Leo doesn't think the absence of violence makes much difference. Nor does Timothy Moore, and he says there's another psychological trick in play too. We defer to experts. That's what he sees. I mean, his new friends are skilled, they're knowledgeable, they formulate elaborate criminal plots, they have a long reach, they can find people, they can frame them, they have insiders in the police department and in the civil service, they bribe people, I mean, they can fix things. The upshot, Mr Big can lead people to falsely confess. In Canada, 19-year-old Kyle Unger confessed to Mr Big that he'd killed a 16-year-old schoolmate during a music festival. But in his confession, he got some key facts wrong. For example, he said he'd committed the murder near a bridge. But the bridge hadn't been built yet. He was convicted anyway, partly because at trial, his hair was matched to one found on the girl. But 12 years later, the hair was DNA tested. It wasn't his. He was released, and the government accepted it would be unsafe to retry him. There are other cases, too, of what look a lot like false confessions after a Mr Big sting. But not very many. Because, of course, there's another reason that people confess to a crime. It's because they did it. So, where does that leave us? We know that Mr Big confessions are sometimes true and sometimes not. That means that everything depends on how good we are at evaluating confessions. It turns out, we're terrible. We are even worse than we are at telling whether someone's lying. We find confessions extremely convincing. We want to believe them. According to one study, 93% of us think we'd never falsely confess to a crime we didn't commit. We figure, who would? We might think that we could tell a real confession from a false one. A real confession would be detailed, right? With genuine remorse? And it would include things only the guilty person would know? Wrong again. Remember we talked about the cases where people are freed because of DNA tests, and one in four of them had confessed? nearly half of those confessions included what seemed like genuine regret. More importantly, many of them were extremely detailed. They described the crime scene, what the victim was wearing, what they said. When David Little confessed to Scott, he didn't say he was sorry about it, but he did go into an awful lot of detail about how he did it, and we'll hear about that later. But as Timothy Moore points out, this wasn't just an ordinary confession in an interrogation room. David Little may have been doing his best to persuade Scott that he was telling the truth. So if he's trying to persuade Mr Big, why wouldn't the jury be equivalently swayed by whatever detail and whatever signs of authenticity they read into his demeanour? On top of that, police interrogators, including ones like Scott, are trained to draw out details about what happened. Richard Leo says... Police usually pressure the suspect for a coherent narrative. They try to tease out a motive. They encourage suspects to express remorse, sometimes even write apology notes. They press for specifics. They help them write powerful and believable stories of their own guilt. These things make confessions look rational, coherent, plausible, and as you said, detailed. Of course, some of these stories might be true but we know that some aren't. And remember, because we have to keep reminding ourselves, we're just no good at telling when people are not being truthful. And juries aren't any better. They're just us. But surely there's at least one situation when we can tell for certain whether a confession is true. What if the confession contains some information that only the guilty person would know? Surely that's a slam dunk that we're looking at the truth. It seems like it. 
So it's a bit disturbing to learn that quite a few of those confessions by people later proved by DNA to be innocent had included things from the crime scene that only the guilty person would know. How could that be? Experts call it contamination. What happens is that police interview the suspect repeatedly or for long periods of time, and during those interrogations, they drop in bits of information about the crime scene. They don't necessarily do it on purpose. They may not even remember doing it. But the suspect picks up on that information, and it ends up in the confession. It looks really damning. But it's really not. And it means innocent people who are trying to tell a convincing story but don't really know what happened... Make things up speculate, repeat back what they're told, reason from inference, and if they're making it up, they're lying. How much do we want to believe in confessions? People are sceptical of false confessions. They tend to presume that if somebody confesses, the confession is reliable and true, and so it turns the presumption of innocence on its head. In one experiment, ordinary people were asked to be jurors. They were shown all the evidence against the suspect then some of them were told an extra thing, that the suspect had confessed, but only after a detective pulled a gun on him and seemed to frighten him, and then he confessed. Those jurors agreed this was not a voluntary confession. And when it came to voting on conviction, they insisted it played no part in their decision. But what happened? They convicted at a much higher rate than other jurors in the experiment who hadn't seen the confession at all. What's more, they also convicted at a higher rate even when the judge actually told them to disregard the confession. But that's not the only way confessions can mess with our brains. They can also taint how we think about other evidence besides the confession. Here's Professor Moore. So that evidence is not being independently appraised. It's been tainted by knowledge of the prior confession. In other words, we unconsciously bend our assessment of other evidence so that it matches the confession. It just seems more likely. Let me put you in another scenario. A man walks into a room you're in and takes a laptop that's been left on a desk. The owner comes back. He's alarmed to see it gone. He tells you it's been stolen, asks you to describe the person who took it. Eventually, you're shown some photos, and you pick one out as the person you saw. You're pretty sure you're right. Actually, none of them is the real thief but you believe your identification. Then later, you're told that one of the other people in the photos has confessed. You're asked again about your original pick. Are you still sure? It turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, that most people are much less sure. Perhaps more surprisingly, nearly two-thirds of people change their identifications to the person who confessed. Remember, the photo of the person who confessed is not actually the real thief. None of the photos are. Asked why they changed their mind, most people say things like, his face matches more of the face I envision in my mind, and his face now looks more familiar than the one I chose before. Of course, I'm describing another experiment, and the people involved, they are convinced they made a mistake. But it shows that people can change their memory of an identification after learning that someone else confessed. What's more, half the people who refused to make an identification the first time round that was the right answer, by the way, changed their mind and identified the person who'd confessed, often explaining that they recalled seeing him commit the crime. I think that's amazing. And again, how sure can you and I be that we wouldn't do the same thing? 
that our judgment, our memory, wouldn't be so pliable. A confession can make us reconfigure our own experience, rewrite our story of what happened. Professor Moore points out we seal off crime scenes to make sure the evidence isn't contaminated. That's why that tape is all over the place at a crime scene, but psychological contamination doesn't get the same kind of care and attention. And a confession is a potential source of psychological contamination. So once we see a confession, it makes all the other evidence look more powerful and all our doubts seem less important. And then, get this... If someone tries to tell us that the confession was coerced or manipulated, well, we find that hard to accept. We figure that because that other evidence looks so strong, it's more likely that the confession was voluntary. And then it's a vicious circle because then the so-called confirmatory evidence can make the method that elicited the confession look less coercive than it really is. Think about how this can affect a criminal investigation. Here's Professor Leo. In the cases of wrongful conviction, it's usually because bad evidence or misleading or ambiguous evidence was allowed to develop, and like a snowball going downhill, it got bigger and bigger until it was unstoppable. So maybe the confession makes the medical examiner call it a homicide instead of ruling it undetermined. Then police tell witnesses it's a homicide, and they make a new identification. And suddenly you've got three bogus pieces of evidence, you know, and and that might lead to a fourth or a fifth. There's another problem with confessions, and I think it's the most fascinating. I need to tell you another story. It's 1973, and students from the Princeton Theological Seminary are asked to fill out a personality questionnaire, then give a short talk in a nearby room. For half of them, the talk is to be about the Good Samaritan. They're sent over one by one. Some of them are told... Oh, you're late. They are expecting you a few minutes ago. We'd better get moving. Others are told, the assistant is ready for you, so please go right over. The rest are told, it'll be a few minutes before they're ready for you, but you might as well head on over. On the way over, each student comes across a man lying in a doorway, doubled over, his eyes closed and coughing. He's obviously distressed. Now remember, these are seminary students, many of them primed to think about the Good Samaritan. How many do you think will stop and help? It's less than half. Some of them even stepped over the man. For those in the greatest hurry, only one in ten stopped. They were more likely to offer help if they'd been told they had a few minutes to spare or if their talk was going to be about the Good Samaritan. But there was one thing that seemed to make no difference. Their personality. There was no real relationship between even those who described themselves as very religious and those who stopped. So here's the thing. We don't think people are driven by circumstances to do things. We think it's their character that makes them do things. But in real life, it's more often the situation that affects how we behave. These seminary students have devoted their lives to helping people, but they didn't help this person because they'd been told to hurry. This this habit of ours of assuming that people are driven by their character are not realising that it's more likely the stuff happening around them that makes them do what they're doing This is such a common and basic mistake that psychologists like Professor Richard Leo have a special name for it. This gets back to what's called the fundamental uh, attribution error in social psychology. 
I asked Richard Leo whether this idea that we attribute people's behaviour to their character rather than the pressure of circumstances might play into Mr Big. I think so, because they, 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 they make it a personality situation. If David Little says he's a murderer, we find it hard to see how what happened to him in the Mr Big sting caused him to say that. The story we tell ourselves is, that's how he is, that's his character. He's not being driven by his circumstances to lie, he's just a murderer. You'll have seen that Professor Leo and Professor Moore have pretty similar views about Mr Big. But you might be thinking, well I would, since they've been picked by David Little's defence team. I have to say though, that what they told me was very consistent with the dozens of academic articles and studies I've read about Mr Big and false confessions. It's hard to find an academic who likes Mr Big, and when I asked the police to point me to one, they didn't. It's March 2021, and we're in the Court of Appeal in Wellington. It's a stately chamber. Justice seems to require wood panelling and high ceilings. Three judges sit behind the elevated bench that spans the front of the courtroom. David Little's lawyer, Christopher Stevenson, is trying to persuade them that the jury should be able to hear from Professor Leo and Professor Moore. I don't think it's contentious to say that the idea of a false confession is highly counterintuitive. The appellant has put it this way, it poses an almost insurmountable hurdle for an innocent person who has falsely confessed. A false confession, if one exists, is an exceptionally dangerous piece of evidence. It's universally treated as damning and compelling evidence of guilt. He says we can't be confident we can trust a jury to evaluate the confession. They're more likely to be mesmerised by it. The intuitive response to the fact of a confession to crime is inevitably, it must be right. That's why the defence wanted to get experts in false confessions and Mr Big Stings to talk to the jury. The expert would educate the jury about the process and tactics of interrogation and the psychological factors that might lead a suspect to falsely confess. The expert evidence would show how frequent false confessions are, the way they can be very detailed, what makes them happen, and how those causes are present in David Little's case. But the Crown didn't think the jury needed this evidence. It wanted to exclude it from the trial. Crown prosecutor Michelle Wilkinson-Smith points out that's what Justice Simon France did in the High Court. Justice Simon France says that it seems very understandable that a person, when offered inducements, a big payday, and apparently confession that had no cost to it and only benefit, would be induced to make a false confession. And his honour felt that a jury could easily understand that, and, and I must support his honour's finding on that, because it doesn't seem counterintuitive. In the end, the Court of Appeal agreed with the Crown the judges said the experts couldn't give evidence. They said you only need experts if the jury can't understand things. Here, it's pretty easy to understand why someone might falsely confess in a Mr Big sting. The trial judge could point out that false confessions can happen and can be detailed. The experts would really effectively be making arguments for the defence. That's not their job. Was it frustrating that you, the court's attitude to your evidence... That they said that was it was yeah. either you know obvious or it was basically just going into bat for one side. Well, who knows what they think? Um, it is frustrating, but it, it 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 has certainly happened in Canada. I mean, my evidence has been deemed unnecessary. Richard Leo says American judges also sometimes say this sort of evidence is obvious or unnecessary, but he says maybe they're falling into the same trap as jurors do making assumptions that may be wrong. For a long time, 
um, prosecutors would argue, well, we don't need a false confession expert like Dr. Leo because everybody knows false confessions happen, but that oversimplifies the science. You know, why does it happen? How often does it happen? What are the techniques? How do police contribute to it? Et I mean, there's, a, there's a, you know, thousands of articles, academic articles in the last four or five decades analyzing various pieces of this. I wondered what experts could add that was truly not obvious. The most important idea, I think, would be to make the counterintuitive seem more intuitive. So I wondered if the court got this right. I called up Scott Optican, an associate law professor at the University of Auckland. He's an expert in criminal law, and he's also studied Mr Big cases. I guess my perspective is why wouldn't you want all the information that you could have help you make that decision? He says, sure, it's up to judges and juries to decide whether a confession is reliable and how much weight to give it and what the facts are. That's their job. We don't want experts interfering with that unless they're really adding something. But he wonders whether juries are really equipped to grapple with the problems thrown up by Mr Big. Could a jury figure that out for themselves? Yeah, maybe. Um, but, you know, if you had someone like Richard Leo who can come in and give evidence about, you know, the nature and psychological traps of Mr. Big, you know, maybe more granular evidence about, you know, the defendant himself or herself, their particular psychological makeup and how the technique might have impacted them, then you're giving the jury a bit more weight to be able to, you know, consider their decision about whether a confession is reliable or not. And I would apply the same standards to judges. It seems to me, after talking to these guys and reading dozens of psychological studies and articles, that there are things here that aren't obvious and that a jury would find counterintuitive. Do jurors really understand that confessions mesmerise us? That we can't put them out of our minds, even if we're told to? Even if we think we have? That they can affect how we weigh up other evidence? That maybe we downplay the possibility that circumstances around them might compel someone to confess? that these things might work together to skew their thinking. Anyway, David Little's jury will be left to evaluate his confession without any help from the experts. Will they be up to it? I'm not sure I would be. In the next episode, we'll join them in court as the trial begins and almost immediately takes an unexpected direction. Mr Little Meets Mr Big is an RNZ production, written and presented by me, Stephen Price, with support from Victoria University of Wellington and the Michael and Suzanne Boren Foundation. Justin Gregory and Katie Gossett are the executive producers. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series for RNZ. Thanks to sound engineers Blair Stagpool, Phil Benj, Mark Chesterman, Rangi Powick and William Saunders. Jeremy Ansel and Steve Burridge are the Auckland and Wellington operations team leaders. The actors were Jack Sergeant Shadbolt and Alex Gregg. Duncan Smith was the director. Music composed and performed by Ebony Lamb and Graham Antler. Images by Ebony Lamb. Artwork and design by Jared Bishop and RNZ. You can listen and follow all RNZ podcasts at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. 
We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to (laughs) pretend that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.